Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian, and I'm in studio with our Bible answer encyclopedia, walking encyclopedia. <laughs> uh, Pastor Sean Richard in studio here with me today. How are you, brother? Good. Definitely uh, feeling a vacancy in the room, but the elder will be back Monday. So Yeah, our senior pastor, Scott, is uh, taking a little trip helping his daughter move is always a good thing for dads to do so pray for him as he is on a nice long trek down interstate eight i think (laughs) and uh we're a reason for hope this is a weekday bible answer program where you the audience during our live stream engage with us as you ask questions about the christian faith about the bible about how to apply certain passages to your life and so it's a it's a real privilege to be a part of this ministry because we get a lot of people chiming in asking questions from literally all over the globe so that's always uh, very exciting and uh, it's always uh, good great to be here in studio with these guys because they're really brilliant and uh, it's always uh, just kind of uh, awe-inspiring to see how much they know <clears throat> and if you want to be a part of the program if you want to engage with us if you want to ask a question there are multiple ways you can do that you can of course uh, join us on our live streams we live stream to Facebook Uh, You can see the details of that. Just go to Facebook.com and search for our page. It's CCF Tucson is our handle. Or you can just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You can also join us on YouTube. We live stream simultaneously this program to YouTube. So you go to YouTube.com, search for A Reason for Hope there. Or you can see the handle right on our screen. It's at A Reason for Hope 546. And uh, if you want to avoid, and again, if you join us, just use the comments section leave your question if it's sincere and related to the bible uh, related to the christian faith in some way even if it's comparative religion something like that uh, feel free to engage with us we we'd love to have you as long as it's sincere and honest then we would love to engage with you now if you want to avoid social media altogether you can of course go to our website and you can uh, just hit that watch live tab and uh watch the program live streamed and there's a little comment box you can use uh, and then you can uh, leave your questions there's also a little area where you can make prayer requests if you like and um, you can use that as well if you like so uh, please join us and uh, ask a question now if you uh, are a part of our community here in Tucson and uh, we live stream from our local church here in Tucson, Arizona, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And you would like to um, be more in tune and more connected with our community here, I'd encourage you to download our app. We have an app where you can just go to the Apple or Google Play Store and you can search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You can download that. Just search for that little dove icon you can see there on the screen. And not only can you watch this program, but all of our services you can watch live. <clears throat> You can go to our archives and listen to past sermons. We are a a, a Bible church that teaches verse by verse. So we go through a book of the Bible. Every section of that that book is covered uh, each week. So if you want to go into our archives, we have over 20 years, 25 years of archives of the different books of the Bible that have been taught through. It's like having your own audio commentary from our church. So if you want to study a book of the Bible, go into our archives and check that out. Uh, but also, most importantly, there's a way. It's a great way to keep connected with our community. So if you download that app, you can have uh, events. You can keep up with what's going on here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, 
Uh, there's a nifty little digital Bible there where you can leave notes, highlight texts, and so much more. You can, uh, we're in, in incorporating child check-in for those who have kids, uh, and so much more. Also, if you want to add us to any Amazon Fire products or Roku products that have a, a, a smart device, you can add our live stream to your channel listing and watch us there. And finally, if you want to ask a question of this program, you can do so via email. So if you want to be a little more discreet or perhaps would prefer to uh, avoid <laughs> um, social media altogether and just want to leave a question and watch the program later, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope at gmail.com. And uh, of course, I want to remind you to follow our senior pastor on Twitter, now called X. Uh, that Twitter feed is... The website, at, not our pastor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, the pastor's name is Scott Richards. <laughs> our, you can follow him on, on the X platform, and his handle there is at ScottR4H. It's an entertaining and very informative... Um, I, I keep wanting to say Twitter feed, but I, I have a hard time saying X. It just doesn't sound right <laughs> but uh yeah, it's been around for what maybe five years it'll take at least that long to untrain us yeah yeah probably uh but anyhow before we take your questions before we get into the program today uh we're going to take a moment to pray we always ask god to be our shepherd to be our light and to guide our words so we're going to do that right now sean dad thank you that we have the chance to let you guide us through issues that are too dark for even our minds to understand let alone approach and if there's going to be anything that we take away from this i pray it would be your word equip adrian and i to not only share your words but your heart and your voice to your people to steward them properly to give edification exhortation and comfort in equal measures you see fit and once again, we can only say thank you, so we will. Thank you that you've given us the opportunity to do this. We pray it would be done in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we had a kind of a, a, a leftover question from yesterday, I understand. Mm -hmm. And um, the question was about dealing with doubts, <clears throat> specifically doubts about the Bible. But there's a, as you pointed out before the program, you were explaining to me how there's an emotional side to doubting. And how do how should Christians respond when they're experiencing what we call doubts, not just intellectual, but really just the feeling of doubting? And yeah. what that what is that, and, and how do we respond to it? Yeah, just to recap for where we were yesterday, when we're talking about doubt, we're talking about something different from a question. A doubt is a belief that there is no answer. A question is the pursuit of one. Thus, you believe that there is an answer. So when we're talking to people who are doubting, what's usually the stigma around the mindset and what prevents them from turning those doubts into questions is usually shame. They think, oh, well, if I was stronger in my faith, despite that not meaning what they think it means, to free themselves from this sort of emotional state. And that's what I think is why we ought to readdress this a little bit. Because yesterday, you can give someone who's experiencing doubt all the intellectual facts that they want, but in the end, it's not actually going to be what they want because it's not an intellectual issue. It's an emotional one. So when we're dealing with doubt, and once again, to emphasize the point to death, because it is just that serious of an issue, when it's met with shame, that is the wrong response because it alienates people and keeps them in that state. 
when people are tempted to think, well, if I just had a better belief system or if I just knew all the right answers, once again, emotional reactions, they're going to have seasons, whether it's inspired by harassment from non-believers, uh, being exposed to worldviews that you weren't necessarily prepared to give a reason for the hope that was within you for, or just simply it's September and the June gloom is, uh, I guess, past, and now you're just coping with a mental state, and in this case, it's directed towards your relationship with God. That's the key, is overcoming that funk of believing there is no answer and being brave enough to pursue actual questions, to believe that there are answers. So when we're talking about these things, again, intellectualism can only take you so far. There's three things that, and there are more, but there's three things generally that people who are experiencing doubt need to remember, and that's going to, of course, not necessarily answer the issue, but deal with it. Because once again, emotions are no more productively answered than, you know, someone's angry and you tell them to calm down. Never helps. Someone's happy and you ask them, you know, what are you so happy about? And it doesn't make them more or less happy. It doesn't even necessarily bring them down. Someone says, well, I'm feeling sad. And then you say, stop it. It doesn't help. So when we're talking to people about their doubts, what essentially you're doing is walking through someone in the same situation, and it's handling someone tactfully. And this is especially true for your own psyche as it is for those around you. If you're talking to someone who's in doubt, make sure that they understand, first of all, it's not wrong to feel. It's wrong to make decisions based on feelings, but it's not wrong to feel. And again, it could be right to make decisions based on feelings, but the idea is just that. Don't go towards decision-making, just ask yourself questions, and that's usually what you want to do in overcoming this. Don't emphasize or wallow in shame. Don't emphasize, well, what's the matter with you? Why do you believe these sort of things? Allow them to feel these things, and oftentimes the second step is allow time to sort this out just as much as reality. Because like any other emotion, there's going to be seasons where they are more prevalent than others, and they may not even necessarily have a cause. What needs to be understood during a time of doubt is, this is just where I'm at right now, and that's okay. But if I make decisions or I redefine myself in light of a temporary emotion, I'm gonna have some regrets. And those aren't necessarily the sort of things we want to live up to or define ourselves by, despite what society would tell you. So give it time. Don't give it shame. Give it an opportunity. And most importantly, give it uh, transparency, I think would be the best way to put it. Allow people in your life who love you and respect your walk with God and vice versa. You respect their walk with God to meet you through this season so that when those doubts become questions, they're not only there for you, but that you can also reinforce, or I guess uh, deconstruct, I guess would be the better way of putting it, the mindset that I'm alone, that I can't find answers. Because in this emotional state, the belief that there are no answers, even proximity to people that you think, if anyone would know, it would probably be them, Surrounding yourself with the kind of people who challenge your emotional state is what's obviously going to be key in going through these types of situations. So give it time, give it 
fellowship, give it company, surround yourself with people who can help you through it, and most of all, don't give it shame. Because when it comes down to it, that is the foundation of doubt. When I don't believe that there's an answer, and I think that my relationship with God's falling apart, it's not because I'm thinking. Sometimes it's because I'm sinning, but that's another issue. The point needs to be made just in that. Emotions have their place. But if it's used to point you away from God, that's not the reason why mm. they're there. If you're feeling vacant, empty, just, you know, wondering where the ultimate end purpose or even foundation of your relationship with uh, God is to begin with, allow that emotion to leave scars, dare I say, so that when you finally get out of the funky aspect of it, it motivates you to say, I don't want to go through that again. I want to make sure that I can talk myself out of those situations rather than just having to suffer through them. Use those situations. But just like in areas of evangelism, just like in areas of ministry, you never learn more than when you have to. You never learn more than when you teach. You never uh, share more effectively than when you have nothing to say and God just has to take over. You never overcome doubt more than when you yourself are able to say, you know what, I'm going to ask questions because that is the actual transition. Hmm. It helps to know what words mean, like we talked about yesterday. Uh, the dictionary definition of faith isn't just a blind belief. It's the reasons I have to trust something. It's uh, more synonymous with the word loyalty than anything else. Look up the Greek word pistis if you want to see that in detail. Uh, the Strong's Concordance is a good section on that. But once again, I wanted to take some extra time because yesterday I not only talked too much that my father couldn't put in information on the <laughs> Old Testament, but all we gave was information. And that's not going to help someone who's actually going through doubt. So mm -hmm. just to start off the broadcast, I wanted to emphasize that if you or someone you love is experiencing doubt, then take, <laughs> yeah, take fellowship, take time, take a consideration of the fact this is an emotion, not an intellectual pursuit, and of course, allow things to sort themselves out in their own way. Just keep those things in mind, and I think you'll be fine. Hi-Op, I believe, is the one who asked the question. Yeah, thanks for that clarification. I hope you're listening in, Hi-Op. If you did catch uh, yesterday's broadcast and uh, are here again today, thank you for that question, and hope that was helpful for you. Um, another question we have is revolving around the issue of relationships. Um, speaking of doubt, <laughs> sometimes we do things that... Uh, problems and um, sometimes we do sin or wound others and God is as much in care for our vertical relationships as he is for our I mean I'm sorry our horizontal relationships as he is for our vertical one with him and Aaron wanted to know how do we go about repairing relationships with people we have hurt in the past no idea, because every time I've done harm, it's ended up a flaming disaster. <laughs> um, it's a fair question, because like Jesus' conversation in the Gospel of Matthew, where he says, if someone sins against you, go and tell your brother his fault, and then if you have won them back, you, and then if they hear you, you have won your brother. If they don't hear you, bring two or more witnesses and then before the whole congregation if they still will not hear you seek reconciliation then to them be a heathen and a tax collector it's just not your problem anymore you've done what's right by you but if I'm the problem <laughs> noting the two to tango and and that's I think oftentimes the part we are least eager to admit 
I'd say that the best way to go about it is with humility, but that word is oftentimes mischaracterized as just taking a less than accurate view of yourself, but in a low position as opposed to a high one. So when we're talking about uh, how do we uh, uh, repair relationships with people we have hurt, the point of emphasis is, again, what is humility? Well, as opposed to pride, pride is at its foundation a dishonest view of yourself and others. But if, on the other hand, I have a humble attitude, it's not a lower attitude than what's reality. It's not self-deception in another way. You know, saying I'm so horrible and I'm so terrible and I'm beyond redemption and stuff, that's just as inaccurate as someone who's saying I'm greater than I am. We don't want to settle for less than reality. We want truth. So if the truth of the matter is, in this situation, I hurt you, then that needs to be the first word coming out of my mouth. Or I I have three words coming out of my mouth. If that's your starting point, then it would probably be a gesture of goodwill towards people who are hearing out your desire for reconciliation than if you just came up and said, well, I'm sorry that you're such a sore head, or I get out my ukulele and says, if you guys were, you know, <laughs> that little internet uh, reference there. But the point, I think, is best in that. Uh, the mind that was in Christ Jesus, we're told in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, was one where he honored the Father even in the loss of himself. And when we have to acknowledge that we were the ones at fault, there's a definite sense of loss there, a loss of our self-image, a loss of our reputation, a loss of our standing or being in the right. And even if, and again, this is coming from someone who's ankle deep in pride himself, the unwillingness of our hearts to acknowledge we were at fault, even the willingness to focus on and emphasize them in this situation, not their perception, because that just ends up being a non-apology, right? I'm sorry that you feel this way. No, it's just saying, you know what, you really seem hurt by what I did. Could, could you explain that to me and put yourself in a vulnerable position where you're being corrected? That's something that I think is going to be a good start. But repairing relationships never takes place in one conversation. It's going to have to be the result of proven character over time. Mm. So give it time, adopt an attitude of humility, understand what humility is, and when it ultimately comes down to it, because again, I could go a lot of different directions scripturally, but I'll just emphasize that point. It's easy to say all these things, but very difficult to do them. What is the point? It's that, okay, in this situation, I wasn't acting like Jesus, but it's not too late now. Obviously, Jesus never had to reconcile broken relationships where he was at fault, he wasn't, but if I'm going to adopt his attitude now, what would he do in this situation? I'd say be honest. And the more that you can do that over time, the better. The more consistently you can do that over time, I think that's going to cause definite repair. But like I said, I've, and I said it half jokingly, but it's also very much true. When I've done the harm in relationships, I've often just crossed my arms, been too stubborn, and just kind of let the broken fellowship die. But if on the other hand, I'm willing to just allow the situation to resolve itself, allow the person to come to me when they want to seek reconciliation, a la Matthew's format, that would be, I think, the best place to start. But 
it's not uh, an immediate process so there's <coughs> going to be a lot of steps in between if you have the chance to start positively then the attitude of god in philippians 2 5 would be the best place to go good i hope that helps aaron i like that passage on sermon of the mount where jesus says if you're at the altar and you're ready to leave a, an offering and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you stop leave it there go reconcile then offer it <laughs> yeah so the importance of that we should reconcile is important and i and i think you kind of answered your own question uh, in part of the how do i go about it in in the sense that aaron you asked <clears throat> whom we have hurt so that means that you already acknowledge and know i caused this and so that's where the humility really comes in and approach it like you would your relationship with god even though human beings won't respond to you like god would but um, meekness and humility and going with a, an attitude of sorrow, great sorrow, uh, really can, um, there's nothing more powerful than the words, I'm truly sorry, uh, can really mean to somebody. And it's uh, the, the most difficult words for someone who's struggling with pride to say. Yeah, the three <laughs> hardest uh, things to say in the English language. I was wrong, I'm sorry, and Worcester. Worcestershire sauce. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, Worcestershire sauce. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, thanks, Aaron, for that question. And uh, we're moving on here. We have uh, a question from Yari. And Yari wants to know, um, what are your thoughts on hell? Is hell really a place of temporary punishment since God uses the word punish instead of everlasting destruction. So I guess there's a couple of questions. Is what is your thoughts, Sean, on the subject of hell? And is it really a place of temporary punishment or is it everlasting destruction? What is that? It, those are actually, there's a third option. There's everlasting destruction, the idea that God destroys something for good and doesn't exist anymore or everlasting punishment. <laughs> so there's uh, maybe three options, but uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on that, Sean? Well, it's kind of like a question we dealt with earlier about the Trinity. It's not necessarily the question, but the false assumptions made in it. Um, God uses the word perish instead of everlasting destruction. So I assume what you're referencing is John 3.16, where uh, the Greek suffix where we get the word annihilation is used, uh, that he would not perish but have everlasting life. That's one passage, Yari, and while the conversation in that situation was speaking of not being separated from God forever, not being removed or destroyed, if you look up the word in Greek, I have it right here, uh, apollomai, means to destroy or to destroy utterly but when we're talking about the idea of someone being annihilated it already conflicts with the question because if it was a temporary punishment and then they're annihilated that's a pretty final end but i guess it's the length of the punishment that's being asked about here so we'll just take a step back uh, does the bible use the word everlasting punishment 
yes, in Revelation chapter 14, uh, describing those who will be separated from God as objects of the wrath of God, specifically mentioning in this context those who worship the image of the beast and receive the mark of his name, but note this is applying those who are experiencing the wrath of God. That's true for anyone who ultimately rejects Jesus. This is verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Now, is that describing the fallout? No, it says, And they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. So as an object of the wrath of God, and we can go to Revelation 19 and 20, where it notes this being where the beast and the false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire. A thousand years later, Lucifer joins them, and it says where the beast and the false prophet are, present tense. That's telling. And given what we know about hell, the existence separate from God, being an object of God's wrath rather than his mercy. We're told that it is as much an eternal state as heaven would be, but your relationship with God is very different. The, um, I guess, former atheist now, but rhetoric uh, expertise, uh, I guess, a public speaker and article writer Christopher Hitchens said, uh, I hate the God of the Bible so much that to me, to go to heaven would be hell. And he wasn't far off, because as we're told in this passage, what makes this so tormentive, <laughs> I don't know if that's a word, uh, tormenting, I guess would be the best way to put it, is this internal state of anguish being in the presence of who? The Lamb, who is described in Revelation chapter 5 as the one who was slain for our sins. That's a reference to Jesus. John the Baptist also used this term when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So when we're talking about, and I think this is what you were getting at, Yari, annihilationism versus eternal punishment, what needs to be understood is, first of all, what sin is. It's not something that God doesn't like. It's a fundamental violation of our reason for existing. Secondly, we need to understand what we are. We're not beings that were created to just kind of be disposed of when we're done with. We bear the image of an eternal God. While we do have a beginning, none of us will have an end. And noting where we spend that is what's going to be key. And the third thing that we need to understand is that the just penalty for sin is described over and over and over in Scripture as death. Now, what does death mean? Does it mean a capstone that you, when you die, you're done, as Bill Nye, the science guy, says? No, it's describing what? Separation. In a physical sense, it would be the separation of my body and my consciousness. In a spiritual sense, like Revelation 20 would note, the second death is separation from me and the source of all life. Now, noting what we're told in James is that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. For me to be separated from God in the sense of his blessings, that would not be an existence I want. And there's, I think, a fairly consistent picture of that as well. Because in Scripture, we're given three illustrations, and, and I'll say that intentionally and defend that 
usage of words in a moment, but three ways that hell, not the grave, the place of the dead, but capital H hell, is described in the Bible. Jesus compared it to Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom, which is an actual place geographically. If you go to Jerusalem today, it's uh, kind of just a little desert wasteland, but back in the day, it was where the people of Israel would throw and perpetually burn their garbage, because that's how they disposed of waste. And understanding that uh, garbage dumps, especially first century Roman garbage dumps, are not the sort of place that you'd want to plan a field trip for with your kids. That's kind of the point and intent of the idea. It was also a place of great evil, but the point of emphasis, I think, was that perpetual burning, unpleasantness, stink, just the sort of place you don't want to go. The second illustration, Jesus also used this, is describing it as outer darkness, the total separation from light, as far from it as possible so that you're just isolated and alone. Now, if I'm going to speak from experience, having been to Israel, Gehenna could get dark, but it wasn't total darkness. And noting as well, since the presence of burning garbage and waste was everywhere, there would be some light. So there's a picture here of what? Like with the garbage dump, what? Outer darkness. Not probably the place they'd want to build a summer home, to quote the Princess Bride. Hmm. The third illustration is given, like I mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, where it's described as a lake of fire. And once again, like uh, Ian McShane says, you never sneak up on a man who's been in a chemical fire. You don't want to go to a lake of fire. It's a very unpleasant, a very uncomfortable, and a very blistering experience. I know. So what do all these illustrations have in common? Garbage dump, Gehenna. I don't want to go there. Outer darkness. Doesn't sound like fun. Lake of fire. No. (laughs) That's the point, Yari, and I think that we can leave it at that. But if we're talking about the degree to which this punishment is being enacted, first of all, in order to justify annihilationism, we either have to diminish our identity as those who are made in the image of God and redefine what that means, or we have to diminish the severity of sin as a crime against an eternal God, thus bearing a or an eternal penalty. And that's the point. If I say that, well, you know, go the Jehovah's Witness route, right? Would a just God really punish someone forever for something that they did or didn't do? Well, for all his faults, I think uh, the founder of a cross, co-founder at least, of cross-examined Frank Turek had a good response to this point, where people are asking, why would God punish someone eternally for temporary sins? And his response was, I think, well-founded. He said, or he asked, who says you stop sinning in hell? Because when we talk about an existence separate from God, we need to understand that our desire to be redeemed, our desire for forgiveness, our desire to be shown mercy from God, comes from him. And being separate from that, we would be totally given over to just how bad we are. And understanding the utter incapability and irredeemability of what we are, read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, children of wrath, just as the others. Mm -hmm. Literally, our sole existence was to stack up for ourselves more to answer for negatively before God, Mm. if not for you. There's only one moment in 
cinematic history that really, to me, captured the attitude of an actual unbeliever when faced with judgment, and that is that scene in episode three of Star Wars, uh, not the original trilogy, but the the, the sequels, where Anakin fights Obi-Wan and he gets sliced up and he's laying there on fire and he, rather than saying, I'm so sorry, you know, he's like, I hate you, I hate you, get out of my face. And I, I sometimes wonder... Or what's wonder, left of it. Or what's left <laughs> I, I sometimes wonder that <clears throat> that's really what someone who is not seeking, who has lived a life of rebellion against God, even if it was someone who at a moment or time or another had some kind of Christian upbringing or even some kind of cultural Christian adaptation, um, the, that soul will hate, hate God. It's not someone seeking redemption, whereas the believer would be humble, even when faced with the judgment seat of Christ, would have a tremendous amount of sorrow. And, and uh, Does that make sense? I, I think it does. We'll, we'll ask them. But, <laughs> and it, it's kind of an aside, but for all of its faults, I think there's another biblical theme in Star Wars as well. Um, for those of you who aren't nerds at home, you can just kind of tune out the next two minutes <laughs> here. But uh, I liked what they did with the lightsaber crystals. Mm. Uh, and, and this, again, will have something to do with the Bible here in a moment. Just bear with me. Um, according to the old books and stuff, you just found a crystal a certain color and that was that it didn't really have any significance but now crystals turn certain colors because of aspects of your character mm -hmm. and in order to get a red lightsaber you didn't find a red crystal you'd have to take a crystal from someone who already had one and make it bleed now how you did that was you would go to use the force right you go into the crystal which was an entity now and it would give you a vision of the light it would show you exactly how you could be redeemed hmm. and then when you refused that the crystal would then shudder and fracture and turn hmm. red interesting so in order to turn to the dark side fully to get your red lightsaber the mark of a true sith you had to have had the chance to be forgiven and reject it hmm. now those of you who know Star Wars, you know Darth Vader ultimately was redeemed, but that's different. When we're talking about the biblical emphasis, we can't say that someone in an eternal state separate from God would suddenly over time evolve in God-like aspects, like a desire to be mm. forgiven, like a desire to seek redemption. Uh, the saints accurately said, hell is a door that's locked from the inside. Now, when someone asks about a temporary punishment, I think of my family's background with Catholicism. In Catholicism, there is a, a place, not exactly hell, but a hell-like place, where um, people do take a temporary form of punishment, and they call that purgatory. Yeah. Uh, is there any biblical evidence for the concept of purgatory or a temporary punishment where you kind of pay your dues and then you have a chance to be redeemed after that? Or is this completely foreign to the Bible? Well, it is completely foreign to the Bible. There are people who try to read it into certain books of the Apocrypha, like Tobit, where an individual is able to be redeemed for sins and do acts that will redeem people of their sins, having passed on. This was during the Assyrian captivity. But first of all, the people who wrote those books never claimed they were from God, first strike. But the second strike is, uh, to their credit, they'll try to go to the Bible and I'll at least appreciate that, uh, when they would try to justify the concept of purgatory, not the doctrine, but the concept being justified in Scripture, they'd go to 1 Corinthians 3, where it says in verse 11, 
No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he have had burnt on it, uh, has built on it, excuse me, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, straightforwardly, I take that as a just bare-bones Christian, that when you enter into the presence of the Lord, he will judge the works done in the flesh, whether good or bad. See Second Corinthians chapter 5 the judgment seat of Christ, as you mentioned. But the Roman Catholic, in order to justify these traditions, would try to read into the passage and say, well, it mentions fire, it mentions a burning of my works, and yet ultimately me being saved. Well, since I want a high view of sin, but not necessarily an eternally punishable view of sin, I want to justify the traditions of the indulgences to the point where there are things like venial sins and mortal sins, sins that can't be forgiven and sins that can be worked out on my own time. See the point about diminishing the severity of sin. All sin is resulting of death. Note that. So they would essentially read into the passage this compartmentalized zone where you are purged of your sins for such and such thousands of years, and that, of course, as is the way of cults, to uh, say, well, you can donate to the church or perform mm -hmm. good works in order to help your loved ones get out of purgatory, and eventually the latest pope may get around to canonizing them as a saint. That will be the um, official stamp of them getting out of purgatory and now being able to receive heavenly rewards. All of that is foreign to the Bible. And when we're talking about this issue, it's, again, read into a lot of stuff, but not justified in a plain reading of the text. When we're talking about the issue of sin, I think the best place to start is also the most important place to end when it comes to our sin before God. Mm. In John chapter 19, what were Jesus' second to last words on the cross? It is finished. Mm. To tell Mostly us done. Yes. Uh, I, 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 uh, I, made a, I made a joke on my YouTube channel where uh, Mel Gibson was um, planning a sequel to Passion of the Christ. you want me to do it? Or do you want me to just summarize it? Do it. Okay. Um, my impression here is uh, uh, Mel Gibson's planning on doing a sequel to the Passion of the Christ where Jesus suffers in hell for the sins of mankind after the cross. Uh, he has also encouraged a revision to John chapter 19, verse 35 from... It is finished to, quote, to be continued. <laughs> and that's, nice. of course, the punchline, because if Jesus was going to suffer again for sins, mm -hmm. despite what the book of Hebrews says over and over and over yeah. again, that he suffered once for sins, that he is the propitiation for our sins, but not our sins only, else the sins for the whole world, mm -hmm. as First John says, on and on it goes. It has to, and it's just one way of many, diminish the severity of sin, or, dare I say, diminish the efficacy, the effectiveness of the cross. And in either of those cases, yeah. you're blaspheming the very means by which we are saved mm. and saying either, A, my sin isn't so bad that God the Son had to die to redeem me from it. I could work it out on my own. Wow. How dare you? Other hand, I have to say what? 
God the Son laying down his life on a cruel Roman cross and experiencing the full mm. wrath of God, Joel chapter 2 style, was not enough to redeem me of my sins. I have to either exalt my sin above God or I have to diminish my sin below the holiness of God. Mm. Either way, not biblical. Yeah, right. Now, <clears throat> doesn't purgatory, the concept, come mostly from the Apocrypha, or is it church tradition? That it's they entirely church tradition. They mm. turn to the Apocrypha to justify it. And you think they might read into First Corinthians 3, where it talks about our works will be passed through the fire. You think they might read into that a little bit? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a big that's stretch, but, uh, you know, I find it uh, interesting that it's not that Jesus didn't go anywhere during his three days. No, Ephesians he, 4, he, he went to the set the captives free, so he kind of went to Sheol or Gehenna. But yeah, if the you place look of at the dead, yeah. yeah, if you go look at Luke 16, isn't that where he talks about Abraham's bosom mm -hmm. and the idea that there's this great chasm and it, the pre-crucifixion uh, saints, those Old Testament saints, were in a waiting place so to speak, the idea anyway is, and that Jesus went and set them free. They, the, the Savior they were looking forward to has now come, the sacrifice has been made, and now they're present with the Lord. But those on the other side, those who were in great suffering, are probably still there. Well, great torment, yeah, and we don't just see this in Luke 16, we see it in Ezekiel 32 as well. Mm -hmm. The uh, Pharaoh of Egypt was going to join the nations of Assyria and Edom and the others who would be waiting for judgment before God. But the <clears> weird thing is, and you can listen to my father going through it on our Wednesday night studies, the, it describes him as being comforted, knowing that he is exactly where he belongs to be. Hmm. And knowing that, quote-unquote, the state of someone before and after final judgment is the total removal of all of God's blessings, what <clears> you have there is at least the reminder that the judge of all the earth will do right by all of us, whether in the cross or apart from it. but Well, it makes sense because when we deceive ourselves, we forget how sinful we are, and when we stand before the great judgment, the, the great th white throne judgment, you're going to gaze, I imagine, into perfect righteousness, the righteousness of God. And that contrast will be so stark that it, you know you, all you can do is do jar jar. Okay, I give up. I, I have no <laughs> I argument. I give up. I give up. <laughs> But uh, this is a really great lead into our next question that Mac D wanted to ask. He asked, uh, as, as far as us being able to pay for our own, uh, not an option, not possible. But Mac D wanted to know, how can we even have the righteousness of God and yet be a sinner? I mean, if Jesus is, how is that possible where uh, a person of becomes a believer, they are redeemed, they are now been imputed with the right, I and mean, you can there explain you what that means, we've been not imparted, which is the Catholic view, that we're imputed with the righteousness of Christ, and yet how is it that we're still uh, a sinner, and what does that mean to be a sinner? Uh, well, yeah, the, the word sin means to miss the mark, so it's any deviation between our character and God's. Uh, when it comes to how we can be the righteousness of God, you just have to finish the verse that you're referencing, in Him, that in Him, in His blood, <laughs> we have redemption. It's to see, and the word is justified, it's literally understood if you just parcel it out, just if I had never sinned. I had been put in a legal sense before God in a state where I am no longer guilty. Why? Because the penalty has been paid. If the wages of sin is death, all of Romans 6.23, the gift of God is righteous or eternal life through 
note this common theme here, Jesus Christ our Lord, it builds on this point again and again and again that only through Jesus do we have hope. Only through Jesus do we have any standing before God apart from judgment and wrath. So if that's then the case, if sin is that serious, what then puts us in a place where we're not dealing with something so serious. Um, for all his faults, I think William Lane Craig had a good overview of this. When we're talking about, and follow me along here because it might get a bit technical, the idea of a legal fiction. What I mean by that is that we're put in a position where Jesus is standing before God instead of us and judged as if he was us, if you're following the point. Do I become Jesus? Does Jesus become me? When did that happen? How did that happen? Where does it stop? Where does it end? Well, essentially what we're given in the total message of Scripture is that when Jesus went to the cross, he stood as what 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 says, as a propitiation, literally a ransom for our sins. Um, the book of Ruth gives a great illustration of this in a kinsman redeemer, that someone in your family can stand in your place. And Romans 5 outlines this, that if a system is in place where one man can condemn all of mankind, through one man also all of mankind can be redeemed through him. Now we're all born into Adam, but we're not all born again into Christ. It's just noting that. So if by association we adopted a sinful nature, also by association with Jesus on his terms, we become born again in adopting not just a perfect nature, his nature, what he's gifted to us, but a new standing before the Father. Now how is that possible if we've committed infinity worth of crimes? Noting that one sin is enough to separate us from God and warrant eternal wrath. The payment of an eternal life. Now, you note that you can't exhaust eternal life, otherwise God the Son would have been, you know, even taking that into consideration. It didn't exhaust the fullness of Jesus to pay for our sins. But noting the fact that an eternally valued life, a life that was not only sinless, who lived the life that we ought to, was put then in our place, but that legally he then stood before the Father, literally placing as a high priest would his blood before the altar and fulfilling a system where God basically made it the only way where we could succeed. And by that, I mean him to succeed. And this is the point. In the Jewish ceremonies, there was this uh, ritual called the well, the holiday was called the uh, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur as it's called, and I'm trying to remember the actual uh, note of the ceremony. There were other things like the scapegoat and stuff, but that, that gets into a different topic than what we're discussing. What he would do, though, is he would offer the blood of a spotless lamb on the altar of the Ark of the Covenant itself. That would be the only time once a year where anybody, let alone that guy, would be allowed to enter into the presence of God as it was represented there in the temple or the tabernacle, depending on when, uh, when in their history they were celebrating it. But here's the point. When that blood was laid on that altar, it was effective to accomplish what? Not just the redemption of the high priest's sins, the sins of the whole nation, but in particular, the sins that even they weren't aware of. 
it would result in, because of the death of this animal on their behalf, this perfect animal, that was seen as sufficient to God. Not because he liked barbecue that much, but because it was foreshadowing an eternally effective Hmm. life. And by effective, I don't just mean that redeemed us, but an eternally effective life in that he lived the life we couldn't and legally swapped places with us in his place before the Father and now is redeemed before the Father. Why? Not because he paid it all and now he's gone, he's in hell and now we can go to heaven, but what? He now presents us in himself righteous before the Father, that his resurrection is what makes this all worthwhile. Uh, the, the animals who were sacrificed in the temple, they didn't get back up again. They paid with their lives, our lives in exchange, right? Or vice versa. But if on the other hand, I'd say, what if that payment went through and now I can, to use the modern term, get the credit card <clears throat> back? That means there's still something on it that I can use this again and again and again and again. Something of infinite value to cover an infinite stain. And if this is a system that God's not only been aware of from the beginning, but also one that he's put in place as the only name, notice not means, the only name by which we are saved, the name Christ Jesus, that's the point. The only one who is worthy to stand before God as far as a human life is concerned is when God himself entered into humanity. Now that we stand with him, like we used to stand with Adam, now our redemption is complete because only an infinitely valuable life could stand before God justified. No one would be good enough in their own merits. But if on the other hand, God in his own nature, the only one truly worthy of fellowship with God, stands as us before the Father, well, the concept of sin just doesn't compute. And essentially, the system's Mm. broken. (laughs) Mm. But that's the point, is the name of Jesus, the identity of Jesus, why we're called the body of Christ, is because we stand as he does before Mm. the Father. You use the word imputation. It's to put that on you, Mm. to give you that worth and value and identity. And there's a lot of other legal illustrations I can give, uh, the philosophical implications of the atonement and stuff. I can't spell for those words, but the point (laughs) being made is this. If our focus is on Jesus, then we share God's perspective on us legally. In him there was no sin, nor deceit found in his mouth, the Apostle Peter said. So if that's then the case, would I rather stand before God as if I was Jesus, just as if I was Jesus, Mm -hmm. justified, or would I rather stand just in me? It's not going to work. Yeah, we can't stand on our own. That's why we have to have the righteousness of Christ imputed upon us. And it's like a covering. When God sees you, he doesn't see you and your sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. But what's also important to point out and remind people is that he doesn't leave us in our same sinful state, but he gives us the Holy Spirit and instructs us to die to ourselves daily, Paul says, how can I who have died to sin still live in it? So it's not that we live in sin, but we still live in the flesh, which is still tempted by the sin. Remember what Galatians says is that the fruit of the Spirit, and there's all these fruits of the Spirit, and then the fruits of the flesh are all are the results of the flesh are all these lists of sinful behaviors. And it says that these two natures are in opposition to one another so that you do not do what you please. So it's not as if 
God just covers us with the righteousness of Christ and says, okay, go ahead and just, you know, be the way you were before, there is a transformation that takes place. We are new creations. So I wouldn't say, yet be sinners in the same sense that we were sinners before we came to faith. There is a traumatic and supernatural transformation. Does it mean that we become sinless? Of course not, but we do sin less. And uh, that is a a different rate of pace for every believer depending on their life, their circumstances, who they are, and the work God's doing in them. We are all in different process, but uh, just remember that he doesn't, he loves us enough to leave, uh, to save us right where we're at, who, as we are, because of that righteousness of Christ that's imputed upon us. But he loves us so much that he's not willing to leave us the way we are. He comes in to work in your life in a supernatural way. So if you are struggling with uh, just those feelings of, gosh, I feel like such a horrible sinner. That means God's at work, <laughs> and he will discipline his children, uh, as uh, Romans uh, 12 says. Anything you want to else you want to add to that? No. Great, great. Thank you so much, Mac, for that question. Uh, uh, speaking of Mac, thank you for the couple questions you've asked. He wanted to know, uh, so I can pull it up here, how was it that Satan entered Judas... To sell him out. Was it Satan or Judas? So was it Satan who betrayed Jesus for the 30 pieces of silver, or was it Judas and then inspired by the enemy? Yeah, was he a puppet or was he influenced? Um, let the passage I guess that that's you're, what he's asking. Yeah, the passage you're referencing is John 13, 27, where it says, And after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. So who's Jesus speaking to? The adversary, what Satan means, or Judas Iscariot? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the start of the chapter clarifies it quite straightforwardly. It says in verse 2, after supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. I don't think I have to read further, but it just notes that yeah. Jesus is going to love his disciples to the end. So when it comes to the degree to which Judas was possessed, we think like, you know, the, the exorcist vomiting pea soup and his head spinning around <laughs> and stuff, that Judas Iscariot was reduced to a meat puppet and that the enemy was doing those things through him. There are degrees to which the enemy can influence people like that uh, in their voice, in their actions. For example, the demoniacs outside of the Gadarenes, mm -hmm. they were um, given unnatural strength in attacking people through the influence of these demons. There was a woman whose voice was being dominated. Her mind and will and perception of things was being dominated by a demon at Philippi in the book of Acts. But in this case, we see that uh, Judas Iscariot's actions were his own. The enemy's influence was on his heart. Mm -hmm. So the fact that Jesus would then go on to say, and you can cross-reference this in Luke 22, that woe to the man by whom, the man, not the spiritual entity controlling the man, the man by whom this is done, it would have been better for him to have never been born. Mm. The enemy was created, but he wasn't born. So we're talking about a human being who is mm. morally culpable for his actions. That would be my conclusion. Yeah. So you mean he didn't uh, crawl on the ceiling like Spider-Man while growling and foaming at the mouth? Well, if he was, I think the <laughs> disciples would have a different conclusion than to say, for they thought, because Jesus said to them, buy those things for the feast, and he should go give something to the poor. If uh, you're doing that yeah. i don't know what he's like oh he's probably going to be generous or something well it reminds me of what happened with ananias and sapphira in acts five yeah why is the devil have, put it into your heart yeah why well, you have these two believers and and they they sell their land and they kind of put half the money up and pretend like they give it all 
and they drop over dead and Peter says why have you conceived this deed in your own heart at the same time saying why have you allowed yourself to be so influenced by the devil (laughs) so you know it's kind of the same kind of idea that no Judas was responsible he conceived it Satan influenced him but he responded wrongly to that influence and uh, our next question if we have time uh, there's a little conversation going back and forth on YouTube about what we were talking about purgatory and uh, someone wanted to know Taylin wanted to know would we respond the same way about transubstantiation is it pure church tradition or came from the apocrypha with no biblical evidence or when it comes to the idea of the mass the Eucharist yeah uh, the it becoming, and we'll have to define transubstantiation for you first, real quick. In one but, minute, uh, yeah. is there any biblical evidence for that uh, uh, view? Uh, let me clarify something. When I said purely church tradition, I'm not saying that it wasn't noted or believed by anyone in history, just someone came up with it. Um, what largely makes up Roman Catholic tradition are the opinions and cultural beliefs that were included in the commentaries of Scripture by early church fathers. Some were right, some were as you can see, wrong. Um, Transubstantiation, just like purgatory, is an example of that, where they would emphasize the physical at the expense of the spiritual. You see a bit of Gnostic influence in that, because they put the two as far apart as possible. Um, The response that we were giving earlier in context to Talon's question being asked was in regards to the issue of purgatory, that it's external to the Bible. They would have more weight behind it, in a plain reading of John chapter 6, where Jesus says, unless you eat, verse 55, of my flesh and drink my blood, for my blood is food indeed, my uh, blood is drink indeed, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. Full stop there. The problem is, it goes on, Jesus says, my words are spirit, and the spirit gives life, the flesh profits nothing. That's verse 63. So it would be a further reading of scripture, not as blatant misrepresentation Mm. as purgatory. And maybe we can cover a little bit of that more on Monday, but thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed the program that you were ministered to, and we'll be here again, uh, same place, same time on Monday. So have a wonderful weekend, and God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.